Today's scripture reading is from Matthew, Matthew 28. It can be found on page 706 in your pew Bible. Matthew 28. Verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. May God bless the reading of his word. So in an irony of timing, you may think that we're about to come to Easter. But the poinsettias remind us this is still Christmas, even if our passage is an Easter passage. What we're actually coming to is the end of a year and a half long sermon series. You know, there was a time, well, maybe in the 1950s, 1970s, a famous Welsh preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones spent seven years preaching to his church through the book of Romans, just Romans. Maybe five volumes now in print. But we don't have such a long sermon series nowadays. But what we did last year was to look at the flow of salvation history from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end. And I was content with that to drop it off there, but some of our leadership said, well, how can we just, without going into the New Testament, how can we just study the Old? 
So we've been looking at Matthew's gospel, which is more oriented toward Jews than any other gospel, more tied in with the Old Testament than the other gospels. So we've been looking at that this semester. And today we finish with it, with today's text, Matthew 28. Now, for the sake of those who don't come here regularly, I'm going to give a very high-level overview. Don't try to remember all the details. I'll try to omit most of the details. But just to keep you up to pace. Now, if you've been here for the last year and a half, this is your last chance to embed this in your memory for the rest of your life, where it should be for the rest of your life. We've heard, you've heard it so often. So don't just go to sleep for the first 10 minutes as we review. Make sure it's there. Actually anticipate what is coming next. So the story begins with the premise, comes in Genesis 1 to 3. Why everything that God made, because God is good and powerful, everything he made started good before it turned bad. And then because God is a God of second chances, a God of restoring and rejuvenation. God next comes to, and with a promise of restoration, and he gives that promise primarily, first and foremost, to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And the promise has three parts because they've lost, apart from a relationship, apart from distancing with God, they've lost the same three things from Eden. As they were cast out of Eden, they lost really basically three things. And so now God promises to bring those three things back. He promises them. You know, disharmony crept into their family life. And so now God promises descendants to Abraham and Sarah. They were cast out of Eden. So God promises them a place where they can go. And God's original intent was not just for Abraham and his clan, or eventually all of Israel to enjoy this, but the whole world. Adam and Eve in them is the seed of the whole world. And so God promises thirdly, that once this promise of descendants and land gets to Israel, and this restored relationship with God it comes to Israel, then through them, he's going to bless, bless all the nations. From relationship with God to Israel will then extend to all the other nations. And, and that's just in the book of Genesis, the first half of the book of Genesis. And then the rest of the Old Testament unfolds these three promises. God gives descendants to Abraham. And by the time we get to Exodus 1, there are so many Jews living in Egypt. There are so many Jews that their Egyptians are afraid of them. Like some Americans now are worried about Muslims or Syrians coming to this country. They were so worried about it. Now notice what happened. To God, for God to fulfill the promise of descendants... God jeopardized the second promise because now they're in Egypt. They're not in the land. So God begins to fulfill the second promise of land. And that from the book of Exodus and then again there's a gap and then in the, again in the book of Joshua, God fulfills the second promise giving the people land. And in between Exodus and Joshua, God sets out at his expectations. You see, Old Testament faith is not a matter of works salvation. It's grace. And then God says, in response to my grace, here's what I expect. This is a relationship. I'm inviting you into a relationship with me. I show you this grace. And now you reciprocate. Reciprocation is, is part of a relationship. 
So God invites Israel to reciprocate, and he tells them how throughout Exodus and Deuteronomy. And he only lays, he lays down only two expectations. And those two expectations are worship him alone and obey him. And then the rest of the Old Testament is the unfolding of worship and obedience and grace. While we wait for the third promise to be fulfilled, we wait for Israel to realize the promise of descendants and land and a relationship with God. We wait for Israel to worship and obey God alone so that the blessing will extend to the nations. And then all the world will know God and worship him and obey him. But what we have in Judges through Second Kings, through the rest of the historical books of the Old Testament, what we have is not worship and obedience. What we have is disobedience. And the prophets come and warn. And maybe the people repent, or maybe they just, sometimes they repent, sometimes they just ignore the prophets. And more prophets come. And more prophets come. And they keep ignoring God. And God's warnings get more severe all the time. And they keep ignoring God. And he sends more prophets, and they beat some and kill others. And God keeps warning, and they keep ignoring, and keep disobeying, and worshiping other gods. So eventually, the northern half of the country, which by this point, the country is divided in half, and the northern part is now called Israel, and Israel gets sent into exile. Still, those who remain didn't learn. And before long, the south goes into exile as well. So Israel has lost the land, and it's lost a lot of its descendants because they were invaded and they were conquered and they were murdered. They were massacred. So they've lost both land, and they've lost descendants. But God is a God of second chances. God is a God of third chances. And God restores. You know, they regress, but, but God resumes and restores. And we see in the story, uh, the accounts of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, we see that God again restores his people, the descendants. He restores them to the land. And we think now all of God's promises are going to come true. But instead, we have a re-regression. And in the 400 years, between the time when the last Old Testament book was written and the first New Testament book was written, in those 400 years, when no scripture is being written, what's happening is Israel's repeating its history. And it again regresses. It worships other gods. It disobeys God. And then they suffer. God preserves their descendants, but they suffer occupation from foreign armies, pagan armies, armies that worship other gods, kingdoms that worship other gods. And this is what takes us up to the New Testament. The promises of God that he's been trying to fulfill, and yet the people don't reciprocate, and they don't enjoy his blessings. And that takes us up to the New Testament. To the book of Matthew. And you see how Matthew starts. Matthew announces, the first thing Matthew does is to announce that the king has come. The whole genealogy, that to us is boring, the genealogy that starts in Matthew 1. To us it's boring, but where does it start? It starts with Abraham, the promises of God. And it comes through David, the king of God. In order to say, in order to announce, 
in a language that any Jew would understand, anyone familiar with the Old Testament would understand, is that the king has come. And it tells us about the birth of this king. It tells us about the public presentation of the king by John the Baptist. It tells us about the testing of this king to make sure he will be faithful to God. The king comes. And then in Matthew, the kingdom comes. In in an incipient way, in a preliminary way, the, the kingdom begins to come. Because Jesus starts ministering. And you have, he tells us how, how people ought to live inside this kingdom. Matthew 5 to 7, the Beatitudes and the other ethical exhortation from Jesus. He talks about the blessings that the kingdom brings, but also the costs, the challenges, the demands that the kingdom makes in our lives. And then he sends the disciples out as a preliminary, preliminary uh, training to spread the kingdom. So the kingdom, the king has come, and the kingdom has come. And now what we see, we jumped ahead, what we see at the end of Matthew is that the king now ascends his throne. He came as a child. He ministered to bring the kingdom. Now he ascends his throne. And that's what's going on in the end of the Gospel of Matthew. The old regime is deposed. Remember how Jesus cleansed the temple and he criticized and condemned the Jewish aristocracy for not leading the people toward God. We have a second Egypt, a a second redemption, a a second Passover. Only in this case, it's not a lamb that's slain and the blood used to protect the people. It's Jesus who's slain and protects the people from judgment. And then in Matthew 28, the new regime begins. And that's where we focus today. We focus particularly at the very last few verses of Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20. So turn with me in your pew Bibles or in your electronic Bible, to Matthew chapter 28. I want to show you two basic points for Matthew chapter 28. The two points are this, is that first of all, Jesus ascends his throne. And then secondly, Jesus sends his disciples. So Jesus ascends the throne. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. Well, they're familiar verses, I'll read them again. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Notice the word that appears, it's a little bit, trickier, a little bit harder to find in English than it is in Greek, but one word appears four times in Greek. You may notice it only two or three or four, maybe you can find it all four times in English. But this word accentuates that Jesus, it makes the point that Jesus has ascended his throne. Notice this, all authority in heaven and on earth. Make disciples of all the nations teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always. Do you see what Jesus is claiming in this? He is claiming to have authority over all the earth. His power, his authority, is premier 
There is no one higher than Jesus. He calls them to make disciples of all nations. His authority is, is not just over Israel, but over the whole world and all peoples. He tells them not to obey the law or the Ten Commandments because he's replaced those. He says, obey all things. What? Not that God told you. Not that Moses told you. Not that you read in the Bible. Obey all things that I told you. And surely I am with you always. You see, we've heard that promise in the, throughout the Old Testament. I am with you always. We keep hearing that promise throughout the Old Testament. But it's always Jehovah who makes that promise. Now it's not Jehovah. Now it's Jesus who makes that promise. Do you see what he claims more clearly here than the disciples had ever seen before? He claims to have power and authority over the whole world. He sends them, not just to their neighborhoods, not just to their ethnic group, not just to their nation, but to all places. He calls for total obedience of his word. And he promises them his help, his presence for all time. Remember what the condition was for Israel that God laid down in the Old Testament? God says, I give you this grace, and now worship me alone. Obey me. And now Jesus rises, and he ascends his throne. And now they worship him. And he calls them to obey him. So Jesus has ascended his throne. Is the first point that this passage makes. All authority, all nations, all that he's commanded. He's with his people always. Now he makes only, really only one other point in this passage. Jesus first, he ascends, and then he sends. Jesus sends his disciples. Notice verse 19. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. Now I want to give you four points about just this little bit, this little statement, go and make disciples of all nations. Four points. The first is, really, there's really only one main verb here. Uh, walk with me a little bit. I, I used to teach Greek, so you can trust me, but I don't think Greek is useful in church. Normally, English is fine, right? But once in a while, Greek is useful. One of the things I want to is that most Greek authors in the New Testament, they don't like to put, like, three or four verbs together. You know, then he got in his car and drove to the store and bought some bread and drove home. Too many, what we could call finite verbs, if you're a humanities major, too many indicatives. What they would typically do is fasten on the, the one that they wanted to emphasize, the foreground, would be in the indicative. And everything else would be put in a participle. It's still there, but it's background. Here, go is a participle. Baptize, in Greek, go is a participle. Baptize is a participle in, in English and in Greek. Teaching is a participle in English and Greek. The main idea here is this. Make disciples 
of all nations. That's what Jesus and Matthew are highlighting. Not the going so much. Now, Matthew has used the same construction earlier. Remember when the Magi came and they were looking for the, the king that they'd seen the stars and they went to Herod and they said, we've seen his star, where is this king of the Jews? And Herod consulted the sages and they said, well, Bethlehem. And so Herod then goes back to the wise men and he says to them, go and find this baby. Same construction. And same effect. It's not really so much go, and yet there's some going involved, but the point is, find this baby. And that's why it's in the indicative, and the other things are in the participle. So here, the key here is, Jesus sends his disciples to make disciples of all nations. And that second part of it is what's really critical here. Notice that phrase, all nations or all peoples. First time. You do realize that it goes all the way back to Genesis 12. It's God's intent from the very beginning. When the first promise to Abraham was, look, for a while I'm going to concentrate just on you and your clan, on your nation. That's not my ultimate intent. Through you, I'm going to bless the world. This is the first time that we get to that point. We had a hint of it. It might have happened through Solomon because the queen of Sheba came from another nation. She came in to get blessed by Solomon. We might have had it then. But then Solomon married all these women of other faiths and then to make them feel comfortable, he worshipped their gods, he worshipped God. And then the whole thing fell apart. We might have had it then, a thousand years earlier. But this is the first time. Do you realize this is the pinnacle of what God has been doing all the way back from the time of Abraham, through Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. All of history has been only looking to one end, to the nations, to all people, to Western Europeans, to Chinese, to Iraqis and Iranians, to all people. And now that stage begins. Nothing else is going to happen in world history now. From a theological perspective, nothing else is going to happen except this. The gospel goes to all nations. This is the final stage of salvation history. The final stage of what God intends, has intended from the, from the beginning of the time of Abraham. For the last four millennia, the only thing God's really been working up to is where we are now. And when this is finished, then all of that God's doing is done. All nations. A third point I want to make from this text, or the text makes. Make disciples of all nations. Remember, the emphasis is not so much on go. It's make disciples of all nations. Now, really what that means is not just of Jews, of everybody else. Now, this is broad enough to incorporate evangelism locally. It's broad enough to incorporate social concerns because what did Jesus do as he preached? He preached and he healed. This is not just about go somewhere else for missions. It's spread the gospel to all people who don't know. Now, of course, 
It prioritizes foreign missions, cross-cultural missions, simply because the gospel is otherwise not available unless we go. But we start here through caring for people and through sharing with people. We start here and we reach out to the nations. It's broad enough. Jesus preached the kingdom and he healed and exercised demons. It's broad enough to incorporate it all. The, the final detail I would bring out of this is this, though. Make disciples of all nations. It really prioritizes an outward focus. It prioritizes those who haven't heard the gospel. Now, we've been talking about this and moving toward it for some time. Particularly with this emphasis on vocational focus. Whether you choose your vocation, or use your vocation, or change your location, or change your vocation. The whole focus here has been to use the skills we have to influence people for the work and kingdom of God. That falls into falls under Matthew 28. And so, we had, most recently, Megan Chan switch her career and, sadly, leave us to go work with International Justice Mission to use her vocation more directly for the work of God. We had Lee and Diana before that. Before that, we had Eric and May who changed their vocation and their location and Ella and Jason. But this is not just calling them. It's calling all of us, starting where we are and moving to places of greater need. This is, for a year and a half, this is the point we've been coming to. For two millennia, this is the point that God was coming to. And two millennia later, is still focusing on God calls us to orient our lives in a way that we can further his purposes for the nations, here at home and abroad, to reorient our lives. You know how it is. Between getting by in school and getting ahead at the workplace and raising a family, there's really not a lot of loose space in any of that. But God doesn't call us to orient our lives toward those things. We do those things to survive. We do those things to be useful. We do those things because they're necessary. We do those things because we love our families. We want to provide for them. But, but we have to figure out a way to orient our lives so that they start with what God starts with. Because if we put God and his purposes in at the end, there won't be any room for it. First, we have to figure out, how do we put God in there first and then make room for the other things? And one good way is through this vocational focus. Choosing a vocation that will use your skills to be useful to other people for the purposes of God. Uh, Using your vocation, how can I shape where I am right now in a way that influences people and helps them with God? Changing a location to where it might be more strategically employed. Or even changing a vocation. See, this is the whole point that God has been aiming at. One obvious way right now is we're making commitments 
for the Missions and Social Concerns Fund for the next year. That's an obvious way. And we all have a commitment to that. But that's only a beginning. God wants more than our money. He really wants our lives. Another way that some people, we got a crowd of people going to Urbana this year. It's a great, wonderful thing. Great, wonderful thing. Let me make two points, though, about Urbana. I don't know how it's going to happen this year. I know how it's happened in some other years. There's a very big meeting, very, uh, the, the whole Urbana gears toward the, let me tell you if you don't know, the whole Urbana gears toward the last night when they will ask people to stand up and make a commitment that if God calls, I will go. Have you read Matthew 28, 18 to 20? There's no if. God calls. The only question is, where are you going? Or what you do when you're there? There's no if about it. The other point I'd make is that that last meeting... All of Urbana will be exciting. And that last meeting will be really heavily driven by emotions and urging people to make commitments. And it'll be really, really, you know, you get charged up and you want to make a commitment. And that's perfectly good. Because you know, emotions ties us to commitments. And that's a positive thing. But probably by the time you drive back, those emotions will have died down. Emotional commitments are positive things. Remember... Those of you who are married when you got married, do you, do you know why we do marriages up so big? You know, we get the woman dressed all in white and the guy is in tuxes and, and everybody is like princes and princesses get married and we are all up the big aisle, you know, you've got an aisle runner like, a, like you're a prince and, and everybody comes up the aisle and, and we got all this emotion involved in it. Or, you know, why we make it so emotional when you get married? Because we know there's some tough times coming. When there's not going to be a lot of emotions. So we got to imprint those emotions really deep on your psyche. So that when the emotions aren't there, you say, oh yeah, 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 they were there. <laughs> you know, we two love each other. We're going to make it. And that's what Urbana, let that be what Urbana does for you. That emotional commitment. But here's the thing. There's nothing particularly emotional about this passage. But this is all of what Scripture has been gearing up to. All of what God has been gearing All of what history has been gearing up to is this. Make disciples of all nations. So that even when the emotions fade, and when struggles hit and discouragement assaults, we have this word from God. This word from Jesus. Jesus takes his throne. And he issues only one call to his followers. And that call is this. Influence people for me. All people everywhere are mine. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful, not just for Jesus, but for those who obeyed him and brought us in. Father, may we be that kind of instrument in the lives of others, in obedience to your Son and in fulfillment of his purposes. In his name we pray. Amen.